0: Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world-class professionals. Rob LeBlanc from Ambit Partners, thank you very much for coming on my podcast. Could you please introduce yourself to our audience?
1: Thanks for having me. My name is Rob, as you mentioned, and I'm managing partner of Ambit Partners, which is an international search fund investor. Focused primarily on bringing traditional search into new markets and a lot of work in emerging markets in particular. I suppose by way of background, I'm Canadian originally. I grew up in Vancouver. I studied in Montreal for my undergrad, worked in management consulting out of Toronto for a while after undergrad, staffed mostly abroad though, and then got into traditional private equity after that, based again in Toronto, but investing across North America. Then I went to business school at HBS where I learned about search But also studied emerging market, venture capital, private equity, and social impact investing. And that's what pushed me to South Africa after graduating in 2012. And there I worked on an impact private equity platform where we were doing ETA-like succession private equity, helping older sellers exit to younger owner and operators. We did that at some scale, um, working with sort of 30 or so companies there. Exited that business in 2018, 2019. Started investing in search personally back then mostly in North America, so pretty traditional to start, but then stumbled into new searches in new markets, particularly emerging markets, because of my background working and living across Africa and Southeast Asia and Latin America. And that was the germination of what became AMBED, which was just seeing search being more and more relevant, more and more applicable in new places and realizing unintentionally I was well positioned to 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 work on that opportunity. And so kicked that off with two partners that I originally worked with in South Africa to build Ambit back in sort of 2019, 2020. Yeah, now it's three years later, and we do it full time. So it's a lot of fun.
0: You've been on quite the journey. And it's really interesting that you came back to where you started. It seems to like either you go on a journey, and you don't come back, or you don't go on a journey at all. And you've gone on quite the journey and come back. I was curious, like, what led to you being, okay, I'm going to go to Toronto. Okay, I'm going to go Oliver Wyman, I'm going to go here or there. Did you just like, Open up your mind to new experiences. Did you know that you were going to come back to Vancouver? I'm just curious.
1: No, not at all. In fact, my sort of primary hypothesis, probably when I was younger, moving away further and further away from home, was that I would never come back. And coming back has been quite a unplanned but fortuitous stroke, I would say. Hmm. Though I'm back, sitting in Vancouver now, in Vancouver's home again. The cool thing about Ambit's work is my work life is almost never in Vancouver. I joke, there's just a handful of people in the search community in Vancouver, even on, seems like sometimes on the West Coast. and
0: It punches above its weight. It does.
1: When you get into where people actually live, it does punch above its weight. But, you know, my day can be like an early call with my partners in South Africa, then a searcher in Israel, then a searcher in South Korea and New Zealand, and then Poland, and then Brazil. And I'm still sitting in Vancouver, but my work and my mind share is still very much on that journey. So it's a cool mix, actually, of of both those things, sort of physical relocation back home, but sort of professional and mental journeys abroad, and that work design was was quite purposeful actually. Mm. So I didn't plan on coming back though. My family used to joke that I was sort of quite consciously getting further and further away with each move. So mm. and South Africa is actually almost the the antipode or antipod. I don't know how to yeah, say that word. Yeah, I think you're but, right. When you draw a line through the world from sort of Johannesburg and Cape Town, it's like off the sort of Oregon coast of North America and the Pacific. So it's basically as far away as you can get. My dad used to joke that I went away as far as I could possibly physically go, short of being on a boat. So long way away.
0: Yeah, interesting. And we spoke briefly about what it's like to live abroad and then come back to the country and culture of your birth. I don't know if this is an apt analogy, but it's all, I think of like a Russian doll where you're both micro, not mean that in any kind of condescending sense, but like there's a micro focus sense to your native tongue, your native culture, and then like a macro view, because you're not quite a local there, but you know it pretty well. And it informs your new identity, but there's separate entities that you that is global and the you that is native born, if you will, if that's the right term to use. But I was curious, like, what do you think that does for you as an investor and as a businessman having those two differing perspectives?
1: Yeah, I think the cool term these days is glocal. I've heard that a little bit, but you're global and local at the same time. I, I don't know if it's going to enter the Oxford. Yeah. The Oxford <laughs> English dictionary. To, okay. I doubt it, but that concept, I think I enjoy it on a personal level. I've always enjoyed the sort of fluidity and the privilege really of being able to stand on both sides of the fence and appreciate sort of what's beautiful and valuable on each side. And also sometimes what's tough or rough or not good on either side. I think professionally, it gives me and my partners have very similar backgrounds, but gives all of us a great degree of flexibility and fluidity, and opportunity to sort of spot arbitrage opportunities or connect dots across the fence, if you will, that are valuable to the people we work with and to ourselves. But I do think it is a moving target. I think when you spend time abroad, you become a little bit local where you end up, that makes you foreign to where you come from, and and then I think that whatever goes on in that foreign place is, of course. Less interesting or even almost irrelevant to people who stayed home, as it were. And then that place home is changing as you're away. And then you're changing almost more rapidly. So when you come back,
0: you can never go home.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Both are a moving target. And that's actually been quite jarring for me after going on 25 years out of Vancouver. Coming back has been quite jarring in ways I didn't expect. And out of Canada and even North America for 12 or 14 years, you know, you become, I thought I was a lot more local and Canadian. My self identity was more that thing than when I came back. I realized I was much more different than I thought. Because counterintuitively, when you're abroad, living abroad, and, and working with folks from abroad, I think you overindex on your self identity as being from home. Okay. Right? Like when you're an expat abroad, you know, it's like it's like oh well, I'm Canadian or I'm American. Or, yeah, you're not German. Better. Exactly. So you overweight your home identity in that place. You yeah, tell it's taking all of
0: Calgary, all of Manitoba places you've never visited yeah and then you
1: and you're like find yourself explaining random quirks of like canadian culture to someone who like whatever has not know about it right so then you think of yourself as like hyper canadian in my case coming home and then you're just with all canadians kind of again and you're like wow i'm like there's a lot of things i don't see the same way or i feel very different and so yeah fascinating dynamic but i think it makes us better in our work for sure i mean our work is exporting a business model grown in North America with increasing relevance around the world, but then with local nuance for its application. So, our ability to have moved through those borders and sort of understood reality on both sides is, I think, tremendously valuable to the work we do every day.
0: I think it's fascinating.
1: It's a little bit self fulfilling, though, not to make it sound super special. Like we just wrong with that. circumstantially lived abroad, worked abroad, integrated into those cultures. And now that we've come back over, you know, my one partner's American, worked all of his career overseas in emerging markets pretty much. Okay. My other partner is South African, so from there, but then worked, studied, and lived sort of in the like, North America, Europe context. So all three of us have sort of been back and forth numerous times in our career.
0: One of the challenges I've found is our propensity for implementing bias, (laughs) whether we know it or not. So as I've gone abroad, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm curious how this is for you. I find, oh, you know, I've lived in, in my case, Japan. So therefore, I know what it's like to live abroad, or this is the way things are abroad. And then you go somewhere else abroad, and it's very different. And that can, just like your initial culture got in the way of your adopted culture, once again, your adoptive culture is getting in the way of your new culture. Do you see that as well? And how do you kind of protect against that mentality?
1: So I think it's true. You know, everywhere new is different. But I think what there are is there are consistent features of the experience every time. And there's sort of first principles that you can recognize and apply. There's almost like pattern recognition to being in a new place. And that's the valuable piece of having done it at least once. Okay, And then again, twice is you start to see what those common themes are and you're more aware of what the issues are and questions might be to ask or certainly the blind spots that might arise. So I think doing it more and more times, at least for us, has bred less confidence that we know what's going on and sort of more humility to slow down and like listen and ask.
0: It's like Sherlock Holmes, you see but you do not observe, so you're observing more.
1: Exactly. Or the classic sort of... Socratic uh, or I think Socrates quote is like the more, you know, the more, you know, you don't know So that for sure being abroad and in different contexts and now increasingly working with search fund entrepreneurs in new places, you sort of get the list of questions that need to be asked with more and more confidence, but you're aware that the answers can take on more weird and wonderful shapes in different places than you might have expected before. So it, it definitely promotes a little bit of, you know, slow down, listen, ask. A high degree of intellectual humility, I would say.
0: Okay. Now, you have permission to change your mind. I don't want to paint you in a corner here. But yeah. I'm curious, with your model with, with Ambit Partners, you're going into emerging markets. For me, that sounds really interesting and exciting. I, I think you said 25, if I'm not mistaken, so far?
1: Yeah, we're invested across close to 30 countries now. Wow. Wow. It's 80 or 90% outside of North America, which makes most of the countries new to search. Not all of them would be emerging markets if you think about it as like from a macro terminology or if you were a hedge fund trader, you wouldn't think of some of the countries as emerging. They're emerging for search.
0: Okay. Some of them are,
1: for example, like France, Italy, Germany.
0: (laughs) Sorry, France. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, no. no, Thanks for that distinction. It's
1: it's still new for search, right? So if you think of emerging market with like a lowercase e and lowercase m you know it's an emerging market for the search fund asset class but this is like south korea japan australia new zealand those are brand new countries for search but not at all macro emerging markets but in the same breath we're in you know brazil south africa vietnam right with lt partners we've talked about them before We featured them before ivory coast in west africa egypt in north africa you know and all of these would be soundly emerging markets by any definition, right? So yeah,
0: thank you for that distinction. I'll definitely adopt that, be, be careful with those words. So what I was going to say is that is the interest for you in kind of being first to a market and using, it sounds like your arbit- arbitrage, like your knowledge of knowing what it's like being having the outsider insights, I like to say, and then moving on? Or are you at the same time thinking, well, we got to Egypt, now we're going to drill down like, you know, the exploiter mm-hmm. explorer kind of conundrum?
1: Totally. It's a great question. I think there's layers to the answer. I think on one level, being first can be really beneficial. There's no one else searching the markets most wide open. And there's maybe the highest chance of replicating some of the early returns that the early searchers in the US did. So we don't think it's necessarily first. We think it's like early. You know, there's easily room for the first half dozen or dozen or even twenty, twenty-five search funds in a new country in, in a new country to do exceedingly well. So we've got appetite to be part of that journey in multiple countries as it goes from you know zero or one you know to one to 25 or 30 maybe depending of course on the country size some of these places we're working in are quite small and might not sustain that in in a short period some of course are huge and could sustain probably way more than that much faster so i think for us the theme that matters is being early is fun right now but obviously there's a point at which like maybe Search saturates most of the world and that opportunity to be early just disappears. And then we have to be a more sort of mature drill down exploit type investor, but explorers is, is really interesting for us now. And the reason is, you know, there's key elements underpinning our, our investment thesis or our philosophy that speak to the potential value to create in being early. And I say potential on purpose because it, it comes with, you know, commensurate risks on the other side of the equation. But we think first and foremost, there's. Something in the talent, the searcher who has the audacity to go do it early, we think is stitched from a slightly different DNA than someone wants to run on a well-paved track in, in a more established market. So we think that we get the behavioral profile that looks a little like the more pioneering founders that were very early in the search world in North America. So There's a bit of a talent. Dynamic to it. It's not to take anything away from someone launching in a search run in the U.S. today. They're similarly pioneering. So we're definitely splitting hairs there on that behavioral profile. But definitely, someone who wants to swim upstream and do it in Indonesia for the first time is different than someone going for it today, like in Toronto, for example. And then the other piece is we think that there's actually just buying advantages. We think that in a lot of these countries, there's no one looking in the lower end of the lower middle market. I think that no one is would be as well-resourced, as well-networked, as well-capitalized as a searcher. And we think in that environment of fewer buyers, there's just better buying opportunities. And then we think it's also, in a lot of these places, interesting once you own the asset. We think it's more fragmented, less competitive, faster growing, and an opportunity to build really sizable regional leaders with less competition and a faster rising tide in some of these markets than elsewhere. And then on the the back end, we think there's advantages to being early exiting as well. Although This is a a longer dated piece of the feedback loop that we don't have validation for yet. But we think that there's a lot of later stage capital looking for good small private assets in these markets. But there's a huge scarcity of deal flow of like well-run, small, medium-sized companies with like reliable books and good governance and and great growth trajectories. And we just think there'll be a premium for those assets, albeit a smaller and shallower buying pool. Of eventual buyers of the search assets. But we think that they'll have a chance of standing out even more in the crowd. So all of those elements are stitched into our investment thesis and we're working on playing them out. But it's, I didn't mention any of the risks of all those points either. Um, like there being fewer targets to buy, you know, there being maybe lacking infrastructure or the socio political instability or rule of law issues, FX issues, all sorts of sort of countervailing headwinds for the tailwinds I spoke to now. But anyway, on the upside, we think the opportunity is very real. And then one thing that cuts across all of that that I haven't mentioned is we think there's actually an idea or an opportunity for idea arbitrage, where you have the benefit of so many interesting search outcomes in particularly North America, that we feel like there's an opportunity to copy paste or search explicitly for assets that look similar in these markets. And then not only do you find that type of business, because of the nature of the search community, there's often the searcher and even former investors in that North American asset that are intrigued by finding something over again in an emerging market and are willing to actually get involved, you know, on a board seat or to co-invest. And we feel like that can dramatically alter execution risk. If you have a bit of a blueprint and not only the blueprint, but the people who drew the blueprint, you know, from 20 or 30 years ago in North America. So there's a real opportunity for idea arbitrage as well as sort of talent and commercial opportunity.
0: So as I imagine myself in your shoes, going into a new market, I think I would be distracted by so many types of opportunity. Like in uh, Jan Simon's book, Search Funds and Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition, he mentions a few models of search. And one of them, I believe, was called the Greenfield model. Mm -hmm. Does that ring a bell? Yeah,
1: search to start. Yeah,
0: definitely. Are you very focused on this is the only type of search model we're looking at? Or are you also kind of open to, quote unquote, new models?
1: Mm. Well, search to start, to maybe clarify, or at least clarify the way if we think about it search to start is a possible what rare outcome underneath the traditional search fund model so a traditional funded search obviously is a search fund is raised usually from a group of you know 10 to 15 active investors and the searchers have two years to search every now and then and i'm talking very rarely like less than five percent of outcomes those searchers don't find something to buy but they build such conviction on a particular opportunity that they start something so that's search to start so it starts in a traditional sleeve ends up being a startup our fund has mandate to look at that we haven't done it yet but it's more because the opportunity hasn't arisen we think it might over time arise more in emerging markets just because there might be just fewer targets in interesting spaces for sale often in these markets they're so shallow that when you build conviction on a sub niche of interest you find that there's only a handful of companies and they're usually a division of a multinational maybe not for sale a part of a messy family-owned conglomerate maybe for sale, but just comes with a lot of hair. Or it's a venture-backed scale-up that isn't for sale. Or if it's for sale, it's at very lofty venture valuations, which sort of break the search model. So searchers are left with, okay, there were three things to buy in this space. None of them are for sale, but I think I can eat all of their lunch if I started my own thing. We think that might actually happen more in emerging markets than it's happened historically in North America. But the other arenas of search or the different paths in the ETA world that Jan speaks to are actually... A little bit more like accelerators and entrepreneur-in-residence models and, of course, self-funded search, all of which will blossom overseas and is starting already. There's now accelerators overseas. Uh, All of those are cropping up, actually, with increasing speed. We, however, stick to the traditional knitting. That's all we do is traditional. And even though some in the traditional model might end up being Greenfield, it's yet to play out that way, but it could. And so we've got appetite for it. But we don't play at all and we don't co-invest with accelerators. We don't do any self-funded acquisitions. And that's, by the way, not from a belief of them not being excellent opportunities. It's more from us just sticking to our knitting and also managing complexity. So we've chosen to flex market complexity where like we're in almost 30 countries. We're just not clever enough to do multiple types of deals <laughs> in multiple countries. It would create a matrix management system that would let's get nuts, break our limited intelligence to manage. We, we couldn't do it. So okay. we're just traditional only in new markets. And so. We do a lot of markets, but the same old thing everywhere.
0: Okay. You mentioned it's a particular type of person that would start a search in Indonesia instead of New York, for example. Do you also look at maybe local talent, like hiring like someone in Ivory Coast that went to an Ivory Coast university and doing search that way?
1: Good question. So first, it's worth contextualizing that the difference between that searcher in New York and Jakarta is compared to the broader population they're basically the same person this is like a very nuanced like sort of splitting hairs on the margin of like the tiny little niche that is search so we think that the founder that wants to go do that in a new emerging market is slightly different than the search fund founder in the u.s today but compared to like every other 30 year old who's maybe post nba in the world they're not that different but so far the, the short answer is no we haven't done it but that's really more circumstantial and a function of how the search career opportunity has been propagated so far so up to this point as you know it's still largely only taught at some of the world's top business schools and so really awareness of the opportunity is only transmitted through that path and so you almost have this like selection or confirmation bias where it's like the individual launching that fund in jakarta went to stanford or went to wharton not because there isn't anyone great who couldn't do it in jakarta it's just no one knows you can go do it in jakarta and so we definitely see that as like a second or third order opportunity like as the career opportunity itself is better known and it proliferates so too the pool of talent that great people will emerge from will will broaden and deepen and it won't just be you know there's probably 10 indonesian graduates a year from the top business schools at which search is taught and maybe three of those people take the search class And then one of them decides to go do it. So right now, it's not a very big pool. And the reason everyone looks a certain way is because it's the only way to find out about it.
0: Okay. I spoke to another gentleman who also backs traditional searchers, and he is happy to see the growth in the space, but mentioned that there could be a ceiling. He's not saying there is, but he's just curious because one of the strengths that I see in the traditional model is the mentorship component. You know, if you're a fresh MBA grad, sure, you're maybe smart and maybe have some experience, but nothing's really going to prepare you to be a CEO uh, aside from being a CEO, it would seem. And even then, I was pretty surprised to talk to CEOs after 15, 20 years saying, you know, they're still not prepared. It just keeps against a constant growth curve. So given that the board is, let's say, a dozen veterans in different respects, does that scale, do you think, would reach a hard limit? Or do you think that's so unlikely that it's not even worth thinking about?
1: Now, it's a very topical question. I actually just worked on a paper that I wrote with a J. Wasserstein from Yale on the topic of scaling the pool of available director talent in the search community i can I can share the link with you offline with pleasure. but we did some very, very crude back of the envelope analysis that suggests that like in the next two to three years, there's probably two or three thousand director seats that need to be filled, and probably only like hundreds of directors who are willing and capable of doing it so and that by the way is. That gap is accelerating. So wow. anecdotally, in the article, we quote some data from Jeff Stevens, Anacapa. They're very, very established and experienced search fund investor, primarily in the U.S., but also a little bit of international I spoke with investing.
0: Warren Chan from Anacapa.
1: Yeah. yeah. So you're familiar with Anacapa. They look 2011 to 2021 in their portfolio. And number of searchers and search deals closing was up six to seven times. And number of directors available was up one to two times. So even if you just extrapolate from their, their own portfolio data, you have this like divergent tangent, right? Where a number of deals closing will far, far outstrip the number of investors. So
0: AI. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. AI mentorship. Yeah. Maybe with how hard board work is, I'd probably happily be made redundant sometimes <laughs> by AI. That would be great. I think that this comment from the other gentleman you spoke with is certainly valid and the ceiling is becoming like, you can see it coming unless there's like a wholesale. This is how you become a good director. This is how you download the values and sort of culture of search. And this is what, cause it's not like uh, we go into this a lot in the article. It's not like venture or private equity or a public company board or anything else. Search is quite a unique beast. And to be a good director in that context, you need to know what's going on. You also see the Stanford conference coming up in a few weeks. Almost all of the agenda is, Oriented to directorship and values orientation and coaching and mentorship. And just, I think that there's a lot of people in the community that are seeing that ceiling coming, but I actually don't think it's a ceiling as much as it is. I don't think it's a binding constraint. I think it's a constraint. I think it's going to be actually become a catalyst of diluted returns. If I had to fast forward and guess what's going to happen, I think the search funds keep getting launched. I think deals keep closing. I think they get less scrutinized, less criticized. So on average, probably lower quality deals close. And then those deals get staffed with less experienced, less hands on, less capable directors, such that median returns over time might start to creep down. Because remember, in the context, search still sits about two times better than typical venture and private equity, right? About five times money instead of two and a half. Worth highlighting. Yeah. Right. So I think what happens is, you know, those assets aren't that they haven't underperformed for 40 years. What they have done, though, is that from the original folks that did it on a very small scale and it proliferated into thousands of full time investors and managers, thousands of entrepreneurs and deals, billions of capital at work, those early super high returns, which, by the way, the top investors, original investors still command, right? Like the top decile or top quartile of traditional venture and private equity still do five times money, you know, quietly in their upper quadrant, they're still doing great. But the median venture deal that I'm quoting or the median private equity deal that I'm quoting here at two and a half times money, that's the median now after thousands and thousands and thousands of people have also rushed in. So I just think search not uniquely as the asset class takes root and it matures and it proliferates in its models and, and the different ways to sort of skin the cat, there will continue to be super high returns but I think there will be more misses that overall sort of dilute median returns over time and board support plays a role in that. I need to stress the primary mover and playmaker is still the entrepreneur in the seat. So it's actually still about great searchers finding great assets and in great industries. The board can help, but you know, my dad always used to joke, you can't coach speed. So there's a lot of things you can coach. You often can't coach just, raw speed and i think in great searchers there's just speed to spare right you know there's incredible iq eq raw talent and coaching can get you know everyone a little bit better maybe or avoid certain mistakes but you don't make up for a slow terrible player you know what i mean
0: yeah i don't think you could coach me to beat michael jordan at a basketball game precisely the
1: point right so i think the whole dynamic i just described is you just have to weight it by the relevance or importance of the board to the outcome. And I don't think it's the primary thing um, that's ultimately okay. the search. But on the margin, I think it matters a lot. And it's a valid concern in the whole community. It's just the scarcity of director talent, for sure.
0: Okay. There are a couple of things that caught my attention with that. One, it sounds like a multi-sided platform almost, where there, there's a focus on attracting top talent. It's only at a handful of the universities. It's starting to bleed out, though, with uh, platforms like Funder and Word of Mouth. Guilty of that myself, and but then you also need something to attract these veteran uh, mentors and scaling that. Was there anything else that you wanted to say on that before I pivot? If you
1: think of supply constraint in the ecosystem, there's actually it's not just two sided, right? There's searchers willing to do it. There's assets they can find. There's capital to fund it. There's directors to support it, right? What you're seeing is that to your point, there's an increasing number of searchers willing to go for it. That's proliferating. So that's not the binding constraint. There's increasing capital flooding in, particularly people attracted by the historically high returns in the asset class. So capital is not going to be the constraint. There are millions of baby boomers with great businesses around the world with no retirement and succession plans. So that's also not probably the supply it's constraint. Silver tsunami. So that's where the sort of director piece really, you know, becomes the sort of like highest nail, you know, that needs to sort of catch the hammer because... Okay. That seems to us anyway to be one of the more medium term, like acute supply constraints in the ecosystem to sort of continue propagating the model as it was originally run. Right. There's a version of search maybe where like boards don't matter and searchers just go crush it independently and returns stay high. And, you know, the primacy of the board's role in driving that outcome is actually proves to be wrong over time. We don't think it is. We think active, you know, conscientious, hands on directors help. But over time, it might prove not so much the case. But until we're proven otherwise, we'd love to have more directors entering the game that are good and values aligned.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm for that as well, even though I've I've not been part of it. It definitely is one thing that really interested me about the model, the traditional model, is that it took elements of private equity and venture capital, but then also had this age old apprenticeship model where it's like, you know, if we're all working together, how can we not like, you know, succeed? So it just seems like to have everything going for it. Now, you mentioned variables, variables galore. But again, like with all of us kind of pulling together, it just seemed like a really cool, like, you know, we're on a ship, everyone's working together and to discover new opportunity. Or I guess in this case.
1: In that spirit of pioneering into the unknown and taking on projects where you don't know what's going to happen. The one thing you can control is who you put on your team. So to your point of, you know, experienced people who are capable and know what's going on, you control that as a searcher and as an investor, like who the team is. And the stronger that group, the more comfort you have that whatever a new place or new situation is going to throw at you, you know, you have experience and capability on the bench to deal with it, whatever it is. So that's certainly how we think about the searchers we back and the, the cap tables we participate in, the co-investors we work with. The stronger, the better, the newer the place, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk about Ambit Partners a little bit. First of all, how did the name come about?
1: A good question. A long, sort of fun brainstorming exercise years ago, we threw out all sorts of funny options. We landed on Ambit for a few reasons. One is that it's a fusion of two interesting words that we find resonate in the work we do. It's ambition and also gambit. Gambit, of course, is a strategic move made often in warfare or chess, often early in a game, at great initial sacrifice for long-term victory. We think that's embedded in both our strategy as a fund, but also every searcher that goes and does it. It's classic, you know, short-term pain for long-term gain idea and then for gratification. And then also ambition, which is sort of the, you know, the fueling force of, of a lot of entrepreneurship. So we see it as sort of like a calculated channeling of ambition, which is, you know, what we feel it certainly stitches through our DNA and the searchers we work with. And then there's also a bit of a play on the sort of intersection of talent ideas, sort of capital. And those things overlapping, which we like as a team and what we're good at. And then there's also sort of an ambit. We like to stick to our ambit that speaks to like just sort of sticking to our knitting and knowing what we're we're pretty good at and what we've done before. And we just try to stick to those things, Like like remember our own ambit of, you know, skill and competence and don't try to color too far outside of the lines because we don't know what we're doing in those places. So there's a few elements or angles to the
0: name. I'm glad I asked that's a really interesting. I like the word now. I hope it makes it into the dictionary. I was curious, so it's three of you right?
1: It is yeah, just myself and then Andrew and Andrew Locke and Neil Obama um, are my other okay. partners
0: Well, I'm a fan of what you're doing, gentlemen. Do you ever have a situation where like you have differing opinions like you really feel strongly about this one opportunity in South Africa, but your partners like don't so then you kind of like you still absorb it under like is it like a personal thing? I was just curious, like, how does that dynamic work with three of you? Do you have, to, I'll have a unanimous decision to go forward with deals? Do you have like both personal investments? And feel free to answer that however you like.
1: No, yeah, it, sure. No, I mean, we're all in on the fund. It's the only thing we do. It's the only thing we manage and search. So everything we do is through the vehicle. We don't personally invest on the side. And then with what is in the fund and the investment decisions the fund makes, it's practically always by consensus. We feel like if we can't argue one of us over the line, on something making sense, I yeah, doing. yeah, makes sense. Yeah, that's actually really good. Doesn't mean we don't start diverged, and you know, and have sure. sh- strongly different. Probably events. healthy too. Exactly, we and we actually build it into our investment process. So there's always a deal lead that works closest with the searcher and the transaction. Okay, and when we first start on a deal, when it's serious enough for the other two partners to look at it, the other two partners start with a devil's advocate hat on. So they they play by definition the sort of skeptic. I'm going to be the one that argues this thing dead and why all the reasons it will break. And that's actually where our internal sparring process starts. So it's never adversarial. It's like professionally designated different roles that we were all playing on different deals. And of course, even in one investment committee meeting that'll flip, right? Because one time you're leading and sort of defending the opportunity. And then half an hour later, when you switch deals, you've you've switched hats. And so you have to sort of stay pretty intellectually honest on it.
0: I'm imagining like role play where you're like, you're taking on accents and wearing wigs and like, (laughs) (laughs) how deep does it go?
1: It's usually us in Zoom, underslept, over-caffeinated and (laughs) in t-shirts and jeans. That's it. Fair
0: enough. Method acting. So as we finish here, I just like to talk about like the world, like looking at it now, what looks exciting to you? You know, where are you looking next? Again, I I don't want to, you know, I expect you can't give away like trade secrets or anything. I'm just curious, like, how do you see like the map right now?
1: I mean, there's no trade secrets in it. I think one of the unique and wonderful things about search is how it flourishes on collaborative minority investors and searchers. And so, you know, if we think something's interesting, we hope others do too and crowd in on it. So in that sense, I guess a regional comment is we think that just Asia in general is on the cusp of search being a, a real thing. There's such encouraging and early seeds being planted there that We just think it's ripe for a huge boom regionally. And then I think other than that, on a maybe country level, we've just been super swept up in work in Brazil in the last sort of three or four years. It's just, I would say, one of the fastest growing and most interesting on a country level search ecosystems out there, where the quality of searchers and the quality of deal flow and the quality of some early growth, not quite yet many exits, but just really, really promising there's, of course, always a big FX issue in a lot of countries like Brazil, but the sort of medium term outlook is also interesting there for the real, maybe holding steady or even strengthening over the whole period. So both macro and sort of a, the micro asset and searcher level in Brazil, there's some really interesting tailwinds building that we're, we're paying a lot of attention to.
0: Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Is there any advice or any last words of wisdom or anything that you would tell people? Basically interested in search or interesting in pioneering, whatever you want to share.
1: Hmm. I don't think I have anything particularly profound to share, other than just you know give it a try. I think that the fear of failure is often overweighted, and that's true in search and probably true in a new market as well. Which is that you can normally learn a lot and land in a great spot even if you don't acquire anything, and so it's it's often worth the experiment, and it's not as big of a risk as it seems. Yeah. And then I think for anyone else pioneering it's just be prepared for when you come back from pioneering that where you left is different.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you're different.
1: You're different. And not a lot of people back home will care what you were going out there and looking to find. And and that's that's the reality (laughs) of coming home again. No one else really cares.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Like when you go like, you know, the speed of light or whatever, like some of the science fiction, you like basically leave your timeline because you can never like go back to That's kind of what it's like. But well, yeah, you gave us a lot of really interesting insights and, and wisdom. I liked what you said about going into new markets and our new countries experiences and just having the observer mindset, like not assuming that you understand something. There's a gentleman, actually, he's Brazilian, Long Horizon Partners, a traditional fund that recently launched from two Columbia MBA grads. One was from, has a background in like Bain and, and Shell and operations and strategy consulting, and the other from financial acumen built up at Goldman Sachs. And they were talking similar thing, like when you go into a company, like in their experience, just asking everyone like on the floor, like how does, you know, getting to see what they do, because there's so much, everyone has so much knowledge, like we we gloss over it and think that, oh, I don't need to talk to that person or whatever. But it's just amazing. Like that Socrates quote you mentioned. I mean, it's yeah. So you really have to kind of define your bucket at the same time being open to learning constantly, I think. Totally.
1: Totally. Well look again, thanks for having me and I admire the work you're doing and the and the content you're trying to produce and I'm happy to participate and be involved. So thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. and if anyone wants to like do you want to direct them to like your website or is there anywhere that you'd like to direct people?
1: Sure. I mean Ambit.partners has most of what we're working on and you know my email is Rob at Ambit.partners. Okay. Happy to hear from anyone. And then maybe offline I'll I'll share that Yale case note sure. that I wrote with you on the director issue, particularly in, in the search
0: community. Okay. Well, thank you, Rob. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. Yeah, total pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to the Horizon Search podcast. I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, eyes on the horizon.